HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Yolele, the revolutionary African foods company. Learn more at yolele.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're foraging. From Prospect Park to an iPhone app, what does it mean to find our own food? We've recorded, I think, over 1,300 species of fungi occurring in New York City. You know, my ingredients are making themselves, and so that rather than having the stress of needing to source the things I need, I can just walk out my back door and I can have them. Foraging overall is born out of living with the land and with the seasons by indigenous people. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. For those of you with kids at home, I'd like to be so bold as to suggest you check out my other podcast, Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager here at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. We'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to remind listeners that Heritage Radio is a nonprofit, and we need your help to stay on the air. If you enjoy this show and listen to the other great podcasts we produce here at HRN every week, please find your way to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to make your gift. Today's theme, Maine and Community. Maine holds a special place in my heart. Long-time listeners to this podcast will know that I've spent a lot of time in Maine. I even got married there. It's a beautiful state full of coastline, wilderness, and it's a place where I think you can find hardy people reminiscent of what New England represents. It's also home to the Wabanaki tribe, whose rich history is still present in the state, alongside new immigrants from places like Sudan and Somalia. All of these come together in the community. In their new book, The Maine Bicentennial Community Cookbook, Carl Schatz and Margaret Hathaway have compiled and edited together 200 recipes from their neighbors and community members. In the tradition of the community cookbook, they've put together a great resource for Mainers and people from away who love Maine. Carl and Margaret also operate Ten Apple Farm, where they raise goats and make cheese, and they've written numerous books on that subject as well. 
We spoke on the phone recently about Life in Maine, their books, and their new podcast about community cookbooks called Cooking is Community. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello? Hey, Carl. It's Harry. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. And Margaret is here. Hi, Margaret. Hello. All right. Hi, Harry. Nice to meet you. Likewise. Thank you guys so much for, for taking the time to chat today. Oh, you're very welcome. We're, Thanks we're... for being interested in chatting with us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, th everything Maine is interesting to me. We'll get to that during the podcast. Uh, oh, great. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, a little bit about my my main connections and stuff. Uh, but also, yeah. I'm, an, I'm a New Yorker. So you guys made the move as well from New York to Maine. And yeah, um, can the two of you please introduce yourselves and just say a few words? I know, you know, you do a lot of different stuff and we'll cover that in the course of our conversation. But just say a little bit about, you know, when it comes up in conversation and people say, hey, what do you do? What do you say? <laughs> that, that, that's a real that's probably the toughest question you're going to ask us this whole the, the, it, the, i think the entire podcast is the answer to that question indeed what indeed do? Yeah. yeah yeah well it, it also depends on the context yeah sure but uh um well you're a writer yeah i'm a writer i'm unequivocally a, a writer and uh goat farmer yes so, and yeah. and I am uh, unequivocally a goat farmer mm -hmm. and uh, and a sometimes photographer. Uh, gosh, really, like kind of just, you know, jack of all trades, uh, you know, just trying to master a few of them constantly. Sure. Um, but um, uh, but I was a photographer and photo editor uh, for uh, a number of years, uh, worked at Time magazine and places like ABC television and and. Uh, Places here, like that, and here in Maine, here in Maine yeah, here in Maine, a uh, photo agency called Aurora Photos, which uh, sadly uh, no longer exists. Um, but uh, but photography was my sort of primary um, professional interest, and then we moved into goat farming and agritourism. So now we are also agritourism operators yeah. and owners. And, and we're parents. We parents, have three children. Yes, yep. parents and in some, farmers. In some contexts, that's the only interesting thing. But. <laughs> sure, sure. I, as, as a parent, I totally know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, so you guys right now uh, are speaking to me from your farm called Ten Apple Farm, uh, which is mm -hmm. in Gray, Maine, for people who are not familiar with it. Uh, I feel like, you know, the, I don't actually know the reason for the town being named that, but I imagine someone might have looked out the window in like February and said, huh, what are we going to call this place? <laughs> it, it might have been. Yeah. Gray is mostly known, I think, for having a turnpike exit. Yes. No, it had the first woolen mill in Maine. Oh. I think more contemporarily known for being the, a turnpike exit. Yeah, it's but I, I, I'm, I'm into the, the idea of, of thinking about the uh, the idea of it being the first woolen mill. Yeah. So for those it, that it, don't it know, Gray is, is north on Route 95 from Portland. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing because I never go that way on 95 that you're like a half an hour from Portland. Yeah. yeah almost, just exactly. A, almost exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
So uh, my, my connection to Maine runs up into Penobscot Bay. So oh. uh, my family has what in, in Maine parlance is a camp, but right. other, other people won't know what that really means. We don't, it's not a summer, you know, it's, it's not a camp with lots of cabins where we invite kids every year, but in Maine, right. your house that is not the house you live in most of the year where you go in the summer to kind of get away uh, is called your camp. And so my yeah. family and has a, a cabin uh, cottage that usually, you know, and usually they only have, you know, they're not winterized. They don't have water in the winter and that kind right. of thing. Yeah. Um, so we have uh, we have a cottage on the coast of Penobscot Bay, just south of Belfast. So when oh, okay. I drive up wow. there, I go up 295 uh, because it, you right. know, it is a little bit faster rather than going up and around and past where yeah. you guys are. Yeah, yeah, we're we're not far from 295 either. So next time you're driving up, just uh, get off in Yarmouth, sure, and, and hang and a left, hang a left, yep. and then you'll you'll <laughs> you'll drive right by the farm. Yeah, that's not, so I would love to come and visit. My brother and his wife just moved to Portland in December, so I oh, will be up that way uh, a lot more often. He he is uh, the uh, health and uh, science librarian for the city of Portland now at the public oh, wow. library system. Oh wow, that sounds so. like an interesting job. Uh, and he's in charge of cookbooks, so I'll have to double check and make sure that he has your your books in there. Oh, that your your yeah. books oh. would fall, you know, squarely, I think, under his uh, under his purview. So I I, I hope they have one. Yeah. So uh, so let's so let's uh, let's move into books. So you know, sure. You guys moved to Maine uh, in 2005 mm -hmm. when you were about to become uh, human parents, right? I don't know if you yes. consider yourselves well, parents of your animals or not, but <laughs> you were expecting uh, a child, right? Yeah. Yes. Well, so we actually, so we left New York City in 2003 okay. and spent a year traveling around the United States. We had this fantasy that we wanted to be goat farmers and make goat cheese, but we knew nothing about goats and we knew nothing about cheese making. Yeah. Hmm. So we visited about a hundred farms in the span of 12, year. 12 months. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, I mean, you, you guys really set your mind to it and just like went after it. And even, yeah. I mean, the thing that's amazing <laughs> to me is that I feel like I've interviewed, you know, I've interviewed lots of people on this show who, you know, have a similar story, right? Who go from, you know, I mean, it, it's not, it's not super uncommon to hear stories of people who didn't necessarily grow up in agriculture, who decided that they wanted to be in agriculture, et cetera, who just said, oh, I'm just going to go start doing this thing. And then kind of got yeah. like swept up in it and had to figure out along the way, um, and and I sometimes feel like it. it pe sometimes people don't say it, but they kind of. I, I feel like there's a like, what if I didn't do that? What you know, like maybe the you know this is I you know people love where they're at in life, but they maybe mm -hmm. are like, well, maybe I maybe I should have researched a little before I started, and maybe <laughs> I wouldn't have pursued this had I researched. But you guys yeah. researched and still decided to do it. Yeah, it's yeah, true. yeah. We figured, you know, we kind of we 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 planned to do it for a year, and at the end of that year, we got we got married here in Maine, mm. um, actually on on a farm with goats. Um, and uh, we figured, you know, at the end of the year, if we didn't want to get goats, we could always just, you know, kind of move back to the city and, and beg for our jobs back. Yeah, right. <laughs> like sure. I mean, that is the interesting thing about a place like New York, and I feel like there also is this sense among people that I think that have left sort of city life. Um, that like maybe you only get one chance to leave or maybe you only get one chance to make it in in an effort like farming but the city is yeah. always going to be there that, yeah that's, that's true. true yeah actually when we met it was my second stint in, in right. new york i've mm. been in new york for four years came back to maine for a year and then went back to new york Got it. and uh it was shortly after that that we met and then yeah. <laughs> decided to leave again <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I mean, and as a as a writer, Margaret, were you kind of always thinking towards like 
you know, is there fodder in this for for a book? I mean, so you guys moved to Maine and started Ten Apple Farm in 2005. And mm -hmm. your first book, The Year of the Goat, 40,000 Miles on the Quest for the Perfect Cheese, came out in 2007. So like, I know how long it takes to write a book. It took me 18 <laughs> months or so. So did you start writing the book before you even opened the farm? Yeah. So we were actually, the book is really the story of our journey. Got and it. we were we were like bloggers when people weren't really reading blogs as no, much then. Sure. But, but we, you know, I would write these like dispatches from the road. Got and, it. Um, and I was collecting stories, thinking that, you know, Carl was photographing everything. And we weren't sure if it would take the shape of a book or if it would take the shape of some sort of exhibit or something. But we were we were interested in working together creatively, too, you right. know, which is something we've continued to do for now almost 20 years. But um, so, yeah, I was working on it along the way. And uh, and then, yeah, then, as as you say, it came out. Um, when it when it actually um, was sold to a publisher, we didn't have a farm yet. And so that mm. was like that was like a stipulation in the contract almost. Oh, like, that you needed yeah. a farm before the book came out. Yeah. <laughs> we needed the epilogue yeah. to, for us to be on the farm. So we, sure. we, we started hitting, hitting the pavement and looking for the farm at that point. Yeah, I guess the, I guess the sort of the, the, the story is not as, uh, is not as clear if, uh, you know, we spent a year searching, we came up with all these stories and we want to do this thing, but never actually. Do yeah. This yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you and you've continued writing pretty much. It seems like nonstop since. I mean, you know, you went on to have another book in two thousand nine, continuing with goats, and then yeah. recipes in Portland, uh, Portland Maine Chef's Table in twenty twelve, the new Portland Maine Chef's Table. So you updated that book seven years mm -hmm. later in twenty nineteen, and and then the, the your most recent book that's sitting in front of me is one that you really more edited together, um, yeah. the Maine Bicentennial Community Cookbook. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And most of those books um, are collaborations with Carl, too. Like mm. the the Chef's Table books, um, they're, you know, four color glossy books that Carl yep. did all the photography for. So in some ways, it's just like it's been an excuse to. Well, the Chef's Table books, I feel like was just an excuse to go out for dinner and write it off our taxes. Yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, so yeah, I have continued writing all along and and uh, continued collaborating with with Carl all along. Yeah. And now we're our interest in community cookbooks is kind of has, has been born out of the, the community we live in here in here in Gray and the, the farming community that we're part of. Um, yeah. So, so let's 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 yeah. shift to talking about community cookbooks. So, I mean, you know, yeah. what, what I think of when I think of community cookbooks and I think many people probably would remember, you know, I remember on my mother's cookbook shelf, there were a lot of these weird kind of spiral bound books that had come from various places. Some of them, I think she was gifted and some of them probably came from garage sales. And, you know, so, some of them perhaps were given to her by friends in far flung places if a, a church or a synagogue or a community group uh, was raising mm -hmm. money, you know, I mean, my understanding is that starting in the 19th century, it became a, a sort of a vehicle both for recording recipes of a place, but also as a fundraising. Mm -hmm. Right. Activity. Yeah. Pri yeah. And primarily as 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 a fundraising uh, mechanism. Um, and uh, it was shortly after the Civil War, actually, that mm. they started being produced primarily to raise money for Civil War veterans issues, you know, hospitals and and, uh, and widows and orphans, widows and orphans, and, it, yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and then um, 
And we've been really, you know, kind of set on this path by our friend and colleague and collaborator, uh, Don Lindgren, who owns a, uh, who's an antiquarian bookseller and owns a bookstore here in Maine called Rabelais uh, Books and is one of the, like, it's really one of the incredible food treasures of Maine. I think any of the sort of chefs and restaurant folks in and around Portland will attest to that, that it's an incredible resource and he's an incredible resource um, of food, knowledge and history. And he's the one that kind of set us on this path of interest in community cookbooks. It's something that he's been interested in in for more than a decade and collecting them. Hmm. And when we had this, we had just finished doing the second Portland, Maine chef's table book and the, uh, Maine Bicentennial was approaching. It was 2019. The Bicentennial was in 2020. And I came across a sesquicentennial uh, cookbook mm. um, from Maine that was a community cookbook. And we reached out to the Bicentennial Commission and said, is anyone doing a Bicentennial cookbook? And they said no. And we sort of took it upon ourselves to to do one. And when we went to Don with this idea, because he's kind of our our cookbook resource, and we explained to him that we wanted, um, you know, some money from the project to go to fight hunger in Maine. And we wanted to collect recipes from people all over the state and some famous Mainers and just regular, you know, households. Um, he said, well, it sounds like, you know, you're putting together a community cookbook. Right. And we said, what's a community cookbook? And and that's when he kind of and then he shared with us his incredible collection of like over 800 hmm. community cookbooks just from Maine. I mean, he has wow. many, many more thousands from, from thousands all from the, all over the yeah. world, uh, country world, and, country, world. Country and yeah. world, yeah. but his main collection, which is probably the largest, you know, main collection is over 800 books from, you know, from Portland to the smallest town in Arista County hmm. um, and everything in between. And, and it was just, we were just like hooked on these books. They're really fascinating and and some of them are not so fascinating they're sure. you know the regular ones that you kind of would expect with not a whole lot of information but but then there would be some that were just like you know beautifully done and or you know have just a really interest from an interesting community um, well, and I think they just, they sort of exist at this intersection of like history and domesticity and technology and food, obviously, and, and community. community. And like, the more you look at them and really, really look at them, the more interesting they are. I mean, I totally yeah. discounted these on my mom's shelf when I was, sure. when I was growing up. And honestly, as someone who, you know, has worked in, in, cookbook publishing in various capacities they didn't seem like quote real books sure you know right um yeah they're but... like they're kind of flimsy and like they don't you know and 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 i think part of that is that in the, my sense of it from ones that i've sort of looked through and i have some on my shelf you know is that in kind of like the 60s and 70s i think they became very formulaic and i don't think they've necessarily included much from the communities that they were being sold to support yeah, I, th I feel like you could just order them and it's like, all right, well, we have the like, you know, we'll, we'll put a line drawing of your Lutheran church on the cover and we'll put yeah. your address yeah. on the back and you can order 500 copies and you can use them as a fundraiser. And it's like, yeah. you yeah. know. Yeah. And I think that that is true. And in fact, in the that time period, there were these sort of big 
uh, sort of printing press, you know, job places in the Midwest mm. that that created these sort of templates. Yep. And and you would you would send them, you know, all the recipes and they would just sort of drop them into or, a template. Or and... not even your own recipes. Yeah, sometimes yeah. it wasn't yeah. your own yeah. recipes. Right, that's uh, right. But but then, you know, at the same time, like my mom has one, which uh, my mom's an English professor and also didn't really ever think much of these as actual, like, uh, books. Um, but she has a, a, a string, it's bound in yarn. Hmm. And a friend of hers who was... Uh, a female doctor in the seventies um, or she was doing her residency in the seventies, the, all the residents put together a, a cookbook at, at this hospital and like sewed it with yarn. And it was all things that you could make in the off hours huh. so that when you were home, you could feed your family, yeah. you know, for, I think it was specifically like for female residents when, you know, most women were not going out to be doctors. Right. Like, like even at the same time that there were these mass produced things that there were also people doing them in a very homespun way. So anyway, sure. we just got super hooked on this, um, starting to, to look through Dawn's collection and then putting together the Bicentennial community cookbook. We used, um, recipes from his collection as well as gathering them from people all over the state. And so we, we started to delve even more deeply into the, the world of community cookbooks right. as we were putting one together. Yeah, right. and, and one of the really interesting things that happened as we were putting together the main bicentennial community cookbook was, so we sent out a, a call for recipes, you know, sort of statewide and, and the recipes would start, we built a, a website that had a little, you know, submission portal and people would submit recipes and stories and photos through the website. And we started getting recipes that people would send us with a family story but the recipe itself actually was coming from an a previous community cookbook. So mm. it was a community cookbook that was given to them um, or, you know, that was that their mom had or their grandmother, their grandmother's recipe was in the, you know, was in this community cookbook from the 1900s, early 1900s, and they were still cooking it today. And or they or they had taken a recipe that they found in a in a cookbook and then like changed it completely, but still sent us a scan of the original <laughs> cookbook page with right. like notes and notes arrows and, and you know, post-its with different ingredients on it. And it, it occurred to us that these community cookbooks was a really primary way that recipes were traveling from family to family, from community to, com to community. And that, um, often what people considered their own family recipe was really someone else's family recipe or there's and in some ways there's no way to really know whose recipe it was to begin with. It was just sure. these recipes continued to be shared through community cookbooks and then people were sharing them with us as with you know with the story of their connection to the recipe. And that was really interesting and sort of underscored for us the cultural importance of these community cookbooks. Absolutely. I mean, something that, that strikes me about them and the idea behind them, knowing and, and the experience that I've had, the time that I've spent in Maine, I mean, for people that haven't, for people that haven't been to Maine, I always think of Maine as sort of like this, uh, like this weird 
like place in New England where I mean there there is definitely like there's a, a New England attitude of like can do and sort of like leave me alone sort of don't tread on me kind of thing <laughs> but it also is like it's it's a hard place to live like I think that in in much so much of like the northeast and even the Atlantic seaboard overall has become suburbia mm-hmm. where like it's not hard to live you live in, in a cul-de-sac you can see your neighbors you can go to the you know, Home Depot, all these things. And while that stuff is creeping into Maine, you know, in my childhood, like when we would go to Maine, you know, there, we didn't have a phone and we didn't have a TV. And like, you know, if if you wanted to use, like there was one house in the community where I spent my childhood that had a phone. And so like, if you needed to use the phone, you went to Blair's house and you like, you asked to to make a phone call, you know, and, and I mean, it happened to also be the general store. Right. And so like, you know, and that was within my lifetime. And I think there's very few people left that have any kind of sense of that. So like Maine was a place that was a hard place to live, especially in the winter. And so yeah. Yeah. communities did come together. But like, if you needed help from your neighbor, you know, if you live in rural Maine, uh, you know, and your truck was broken down, your neighbor could be miles away and, and, yeah. and unavailable by phone call. And so having these communities be strong and having people share food as a way to connect is something mm-hmm. that to me, you know, not that it's not true in other places, but it definitely feels like it's still very strong in Maine in, way, in ways that it might not be in, you know, Alexandria, Virginia, in a suburb of a city. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of the stories we got um, from people to, you know, that they were submitting together with recipes were stories, you know, that tied into that idea very, very closely, um, about, you know, food scarcity, um, about just getting by, getting by with the help of neighbors. Um, there was that story, the Thanksgiving story. Yeah. Oh, heartbreaking. Yeah. About this family, um, that, and we didn't have space for it in the cookbook, maybe in volume two, Yeah, and put it in. Um, but, um, this family that, you know, really had, had no food for Thanksgiving and the dad had gone out. I think it was, it's five sisters that their, their the, mother, their had mother passed. had passed. And so the, the father was taking care of these of, of five daughters and he went out on Thanksgiving today to try to get a deer um, so that they would have uh, food for Thanksgiving. And he didn't get one mm. and, you know, came back, you know, empty handed to empty house. And, and they went to their neighbors who owned the general store and their neighbors just basically you know, gave them Thanksgiving dinner. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and there were, you know, it was just uh, lots of stories like that. Well, and yeah. I think we see that in our, in our daily life. I mean, gray is not, you know, we're sort of semi-rural where a lot of people commute to Portland, but, but during the pandemic, um, mm. you know, the need obviously everywhere has been great. Yep. And our family started volunteering at the local food pantry. And it's incredible to see people who, you know, leading up to the election, like there were certain topics nobody talked about. Sure. Um, but everyone coming together and making sure that, you know, 50 to 60 families in a town of 7,000 people um, were coming in every two weeks to get boxes of food. And there were 12 to 15 volunteers, you know, coming together and making that happen. And so it, that spirit of community still feels really, really strong and, and relevant here in Maine.
This episode is brought to you by Yolele, a revolutionary African foods company based in Brooklyn, New York. Yolele was founded by Senegalese chef, activist, and cookbook author Pierre Thiam. Yolele creates income opportunities for smallholder farming communities, supports their sustainable farming practices, and shares Africa's ingredients and cuisines with the world, starting with Fonio. Fonio is a delicious, nutrient-dense, gluten-free ancient West African grain. Fonio is also drought-resistant, so it's good for the planet. Yolele is creating a market for Fonio and other African crops grown under resilient farming systems to foster a more biodiverse, drought-tolerant landscape across West Africa. Try Yolele's Fonio, quick-cooking Fonio pilafs, and new Fonio chips boldly flavored with the ingredients and flavors of West Africa. Sign up for their newsletter for recipes, notes from the field, and culinary discourse, and get a free bag of Fonio with your next order of $32 or more. Learn more at yolele.com. That's Y-O-L-E-L-E dot com. Maine is also a place I think that is, uh, you know, it certainly is changing. Um, you yeah. Know, I mean, certainly in, in my lifetime and the time I've spent in Maine, you know, a large Somali population, uh, mm-hmm. you know, since the since unrest there. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting as well, right? To have the, you know, what, what might be considered sort of disparate, right? I mean, like people mm-hmm. who maybe have never seen snow before <laughs> suddenly living yeah. in a place right. where it's like yeah. cold all, all winter long um, and, and becoming part of a community. And then also having a really, you know, a, a very long and clearly, you know, obviously established Native American population population mm-hmm. um, as well. So I think those, you know, those are also interesting pieces to, to what makes up the main community. Yeah. yeah. And when, when we were putting together the, um, the Bicentennial cookbook, we definitely had a lot of conversations about, you know, like what is main food and, and what food should be represented in it. And we really made a, a very conscious effort to, you know, it was celebrating the, you know, Bicentennial of statehood, but we were very conscious of the fact that that food traditions in Maine stretched back, you know, thousands of years before sure. Maine was a state yeah. and starting with the with the Wabanaki Confederacy. And we were able to even there aren't actual um, Wabanaki recipes in the cookbook, but there is an essay about uh, Wabanaki food, uh, foodways and food sovereignty that uh, a professor, the the head of the um, sort of uh, um, I think he's in the anthropology department. Yeah, anthropology department. But he's a member of the Penobscot Nation. Yeah, Darren Ranko is his yeah. name, and he yeah. wrote a, a really beautiful essay in the book about about Wabanaki foodways. And th- there are some recipes from people who, in the in their note, yeah, identify identified, identified as Native as, American as having yep. yeah, yeah some. Well, and, and that's definitely one of the interesting things about food is how it shifts and makes its way into what I, you know, I, I always like to think of it as like a personal food canon, right? So mm-hmm. like, you know, the recipes yeah. that I've, you know, that my mom were, were in her canon, some of them trickle down into mine, but I don't make all the same stuff that she used to make. Um, and, and those recipes come from all sorts of places. I mean, I, you know, I joke with people that, you know, what I consider to be my gr- Jewish grandmother's like you know, brisket, which growing up, it was like, it's grandma's brisket, it's grandma's brisket, it's grandma's brisket. It turns out like that recipe came off the back of the Lipton (laughs) soup box in 1952. But like, you know, for all of us, it's grandma's brisket recipe. And it's the only way we make brisket. But like, you know, it includes like Lipton dry onion soup mix. 
Yeah. But yeah. It, that's our yeah. family recipe now. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. So I think that stuff is is super interesting. Um, I would love to to hear a little bit about your the relationship of your kids to all of this. Uh, you know, like how how is farming uh, for them? Like, do they like growing up on a farm? I know you have uh, at least one teenager, and I have a, yes, well, I have two. one two. two teenagers. No. I have one that's wow. like that's about to be a teenager, and yeah. so I'm very interested to think back on you know my own teenage years of rebellion against what my parents wanted and did uh are your are your children like do they like having a farm and having goats are they against it like where do you think no, they've in? never known anything else sure so and, and you know i think it's funny each of our kids so we have three daughters who are almost 15 13 and nine and each of them have such distinctive personalities yeah they're that, all really different you know our oldest over the years has had sort of a love-hate relationship with the farm in part because she um is not she doesn't love animals the way that like maybe her younger sisters do. Mm. Um, but she discovered gardening a couple summers ago, and now that's how she connects and and is actually spends a lot of February, you know, circling things in the seed catalogs mm. and is really, really into that. Um, our middle daughter is really involved in 4-H and she raises pigs and has a couple miniature horses. And uh, our littlest um, helps out. She's sort of the chickens are her responsibility. But now we have a, a little buckling that um, we just got a couple days ago. And uh, Vronsky is his name and bottle feeding Vronsky. She loves that. She gets up early to do it. So I think they all they all feel really settled and rooted here. Um, you know, we'll see how that shifts over the years. But, um, I don't know, Carl, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think they probably uh, will. I mean, I think I think for the most part, they enjoy it and they enjoy the, the their, you know, what they have um, here on the farm. And I, I'm, you know, I know that there are times when, you know, they wished we lived in Portland and, you know, closer to, you know, city stuff sure. or, or maybe yeah. even in New York. I, you know, I think Charlotte probably will end up in New York at some, some point, at some yeah. point. Yeah. Um, but I, I also think that they do, uh, they do value, uh, what, what they have here. And I'm sure at some point when they're grown up, they will, they will look back, uh, fondly at, uh, and. Well, and I think as they have seen what other families eat, they've become <laughs> yeah. like... It's always a shock for them when they go to someone else's house and or go to summer camp or something yeah. like that and are faced with uh, whatever food that they're that yeah. is put before them and then they realize uh, how good they've got it. For, yeah. for all the like eye rolling when we're, you know, asking them to help slaughter chickens in the backyard, they... Sure. They can taste the difference. Right, <laughs> right. Well, and 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 that certainly presents. I mean, uh, you know, I imagine if your daughter goes to New York, that you know, uh, she won't meet a lot of people who grew up doing that. So yeah, yeah. Know, I mean, not that people don't, but the, you know, the, the the population of people who grow up slaughtering their own chickens is relatively small. So <laughs> I, I imagine that that will hold uh, cachet uh, for people still, especially you know, if you're standing at the farmers market in Union Square and you say, oh yeah, I, you know. 
you didn't do such a good job on on you know yeah. butcher, butchering <laughs> that you know that's not a, there. yeah <laughs> exactly that's an interesting perspective um yeah so yeah, so you mentioned it there will be a second volume of the main bicentennial community cookbook yeah so we just announced this um we're really excited uh we had so many people um well for i mean the first book was uh was such a you know, success. We're in our fourth printing, wow. almost going into our fifth printing. Um, we've raised over, we've distributed over $15,000 to nonprofits in Maine doing work in food insecurity. In, in food insecurity, fighting hunger in Maine. And um, we did it, the first book in a really compressed time period. I mean, the whole, everything was put together in about three or four months. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and so there, we, you know, we got the word out pretty widely, but we did hear from a lot of people afterwards that, oh, I, you know, never, I had no idea that you were gathering you were recipes. doing this. Yeah. Right. Sure. I wish I could have submitted my family recipe. So we, you know, we, we really felt like there was, uh, there was an opportunity to, to, to kind of get the band back together and, and do it again. <laughs> and um, so we just, so we'll t take a little bit more time with this one. Um, we just, launch we just put out the call for recipe submissions and we've gotten some great ones so far yeah and um and so we'll continue collecting recipes probably through the summer wrapping up sometime in september and then the book will be out next april yeah. april 2022 in time for mother's day 2022 mm. and and nice. we're interested in submissions from uh, people with any kind of main connection yeah you don't not, have to live in maine live here you can summer here, <clears throat> hint, hint. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> or, or you can have grown up in Maine and moved on to someplace else. Like some of the most fascinating recipes that we got for the, the first book were from people who had grown up in Maine and ended up in, you know, Arizona, Arizona or California, mm -hmm. but had these Ohio amazing family memories of, you know, picking potatoes in a rustic county or um, being with their, you know, French Canadian grandparents driving around mm. looking at yeah. yard sales and eating, chicken you know, croquettes. chicken croquettes. Yeah, sure. So there were, there were really um, like the, the community of people who have ties to Maine is so broad and people I think have such affection for Maine. Um, so I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to yeah. dig up when I'm next, when I'm next up at camp, I will, uh, I will photograph and send you guys the pages from a, probably the smallest uh, printing of a community cookbook ever in <laughs> Maine that I guarantee is not on your radar. Okay. Oh, it was well, it was produced by my childhood friends James Cressy and Alec McLaughlin one summer, probably I'm gonna guess in the summer of like 1985 or 86. Uh -huh. That same uh, sort of like you know what had been the general store turned real estate office where the only phone was also at, at that point um, by then had a photocopier. And oh, wow. so that summer, James and Alec, um, I helped them with distribution, but I was not there in the beginning of the summer for the creation <laughs> of the cookbook, created a, uh, I think it was like four or five, eight and a half by 11 photocopied double-sided pages folded in half called How to Cook a Mackerel in Bayside. Wow. And that sounds awesome. And it is all recipes for mackerel. Uh, based out of the tiny community of Bayside in North, the town of Northport. Um, wow. So I will that dig is... that up, in, including, yeah. a, including a couple, uh, you know, that are more on the kind of jokey side. And one of my yeah. favorites that I remember was a recipe for uh, brick mackerel, 
where you uh, take two mackerel, I think, and you split them down the middle and you cook them in a hot cast iron skillet with a brick on top, and then you throw away the fish and eat the brick. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, so I will make sure to find a copy of yeah, that and photocopy. I know, I know oh, there's I one hanging that. on the wall, yeah, ye I, yellowing I, as it ages in the cottage. Oh, amazing. And we'll, we'd love to, uh, yeah, somehow share it with uh, Dawn as well, because it's always uh, it's always exciting if we can find a community cookbook that he doesn't know about. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I mean, you know, I possibly there were two dozen copies of that cookbook made. I mean, it, maybe, it you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's awesome. Uh, anyway, so, I, you know, I'll definitely I'll, I'll find that for you guys. That's he it. might what would be amazing if Don has a copy? Yeah, if he has one of the. He has one. Well, of the so what I will say is, it, it is certainly possible. Um, yeah. So one of one of my neighbors and 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 longtime friends and and sort of former, you know, I worked for him for a while in that same village. Uh, his name is Joe Riley, and he had for a very long time an antiquarian book and paper and antique store oh. uh, in Lincolnville Beach, and then in Camden uh, called mm. uh, uh, called the Goose River Exchange. Uh, mm -hmm. And he and his partner Ken Shore in that business, I'm sure know uh, know your friend who who collects the cookbooks because yeah. they, they know everybody in that world, and I'm sure yeah. they've sold him some. World, and... That world is pretty small, I think. So <laughs> it is very possible that Joe had. I'm sure that Joe had a copy or two in his cottage in Bayside. So it's very possible if he knew yeah. about the collecting of uh, community cookbooks that one of those has made it already down there but <laughs> but i'll get you guys a, a photocopy of it because it's pretty fun awesome that's amazing yeah. uh and then you know perhaps if you wanted to have uh you know if you want to have james and alec on your podcast this is a great segue to talk yes. about your new podcast called cooking is community the community cookbook podcast so tell me about the podcast it is it's a it's relatively new you have four episodes it looks like three yeah, episodes out so far two, well yeah two two full episodes okay. and then there's a little sort of bonus episode of us just talking about kind of community the it's like introductions about community cookbooks for for people who are either unfamiliar with the genre or have just kind of overlooked the genre um just to kind of give give a little bit of of base knowledge about them but yeah i mean it was really you know came out of doing this main community cookbook and an extension of our interest and in wanting to kind of explore what community cookbooks were you know what the communities that they are coming from and and what we can learn from them about about the communities and and the people that we're putting together so it's been really it's been really fun and exciting putting so, it together yeah so in each in each episode we take one book from dawn's collection um the first season we're doing just community cookbooks produced in maine and we're taking one book and we're looking at it sort of as a, a physical artifact, like the binding and how the type is said. Yeah, how it was put together. How it was put together. Hmm. Um, and then we're interviewing someone in some way connected to the community, whether it's someone who is still affiliated with a church book that produced a book 100 years ago or someone who you know was part of the band the the next the upcoming yeah. episode is band boosters from mm. 1955 cool. um and so and, we found we found someone who was in the band uh at that time and oh, interviewed him. yeah yeah and then um and then we're cooking recipes from the the book and we started the first episode is the first uh community cookbook produced in maine fish flesh and fowl which came out in 1877 mm. so what we made from that it was a little 
a little iffy yeah. the, the cooking methods were a little different <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I, mean, they were, I mean it was all wood you know wood and coal-fired stoves back then so there are no temperatures there's sure. really no cooking times it's yeah. really uh they're, they're really just formulas with without much in the way of proportion or instructions, or instructions. Yeah. um and then you know we're making we're making things from from all of the the uh books as we move forward yeah. so um yeah, yeah, I mean, really, that's an interesting really point, fun. I think, to think about like what the, you know, what was the expected level of knowledge yeah. right, at, at a certain time um, for what people knew how to do? What What is the recipe that you're referring to that was kind of iffy? Well, so I out? made from from the first book, I made a queen of puddings, which is one of my favorite desserts. It's, mm. it, do you know what it is? It's a, I don't. A, oh, it's a bread pudding that then has a layer of jam and then it's topped with meringue. Um, and it's just, it's got so many textures and flavors going on. It's wonderful. But this one, probably because there were no proportions and it was expected that you would make it in a, you know, wood fired oven. Um, it just, it turned out badly. Right. I'll just say that (laughs) despite having like these, you know, beautiful duck eggs and quince jam that we had made here, but Yeah, but that you know, one of the things in these some of these older books, they don't use measurements like you know a tablespoon or you know or a teaspoon. Sure. Their measurements are like you know butter the size of an egg, or right. you know uh, yeah. you know butter the size of a walnut or something like that. And then it, that's you know that's that's how you are supposed to know how much you know and whether everyone knew exactly what that meant back then or everything's just a little bit off depending if your eggs are bigger than you know well, someone and, else's and sometimes when they do give instruction it's it's not super relevant to now there was that cake recipe that it said the cake is done when the pan stops singing right so <laughs> <laughs> okay. well and I, and i mean you know and then you know you guys posted to your instagram for the podcast a, a table for cooking vegetables from 1906 yeah. out of the orno cookbook oh. and i mean i've i've seen tables like this before and i just look at it and i'm like this is in this is kind of insanity right like i mean i i can't imagine like what would happen to carrots if i boiled them for 45 <laughs> minutes right i mean like yeah. as or far as i know like the idea of boiling has not changed particularly yeah. <laughs> right like water still boils at 212 it did back then but like if you had a pot of carrots you boiled for 45 minutes they would or like celery why like i can't even imagine yeah. boiling celery for a half an hour and like what yeah. would happen to it there, there was a really interesting comment. Someone put a comment on the the Instagram post, um, and and proposed that possibly it was because that people were using wood stoves back right. then, and you're putting things on a wood stove in a pot of water. That it may not be a full boil. It may not be like when we sure. think of you know we turn on a high gas flame now under a pot and it really comes to a boil. That's but a if you're point. on a wood sure. stove. It may be more like a simmer for an hour and a half. Sure. Yeah. Or but like three so, hours I, for string I, beans. I, like who I, wants I, to eat yeah, those? I, I will forgive like the root vegetables, <laughs> yeah. but like spinach or but string an hour beans. And a half or, of spinach, yeah. boiled spinach. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to imagine that that would really be good. Yeah. yeah. I don't think yeah. so. <laughs> well, maybe some of these still need some updating. Um, it would be interesting. Yeah. It would be interesting to talk with people who cook on wood stoves regularly, though. Maybe they might, might be onto something there for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I want to make sure we talk a little bit about the farm. You guys do some oh, really yeah. interesting stuff for people who want to visit, right? You, So I know the pandemic may have changed these things. Are you open again for farm stays in 2021? We are. Yeah, yeah. we are. We're actually pretty 
we're the, the we have a guest house um, that, that we rent on Airbnb. Nice. And that's actually booked pretty solid right now through the summer. Um, I think we're kind of booking into October and November right now, which is a great time. Which come. is a, October's a great time to come <laughs> yeah. to Maine. Yeah. Um, and uh, but we also do farm experiences. And and this really sort of was born out of the year of the goat when we were on the road and visiting people and just having the the uh, the amount of hospitality that was shown to us while we were sort of out there trying to figure out if this was something we wanted to do or not was really incredible. Yeah, people were really generous with with their time and knowledge and we we feel like we, you know, want to do that as well, but we've also been able to turn that into a a business. So Yeah. So yeah, tell me about the goat hikes. I'm so interested in this. Yeah. So one of the things we did on the year of the goat was we went goat packing out in Mm. Wyoming and goat packing is basically camping with goats where the goats carry all of your camping equipment. And it's really, it's a lot of fun. It's an incredible experience. And so it's something that we, not the packing part, because we, we never actually got the packs on them, but we did start taking the goats for hikes in the woods. And this was while we both had full-time jobs off the farm. So the Mm. first 14 years we were on the farm, we both had full-time off-farm jobs. The farm was really just our kind of lifestyle choice and how we wanted to raise our kids. And and we were doing these goat hikes as kind of a side hustle, a way for the goats to earn their keep. And and we do a couple like each month, we do like one or two and we'd invite people to come on these goat hikes and then it just kind of exploded. Yeah, Mm. in the last couple of years, people I think have really finally caught up to us. (laughs) They're interesting goats. (laughs) Yeah, when we left New York, when we told, like when we were leaving New York and we were telling people, yeah, we're quitting, we have these great jobs and we're quitting our jobs and we're- We're gonna go raise dairy goats. We're gonna go become (laughs) goat farmers. And like people just thought we were nuts. They thought we were crazy. But, But so now what we do, we have about a mile and a half loop in in our own woods and so we take people out on it's about a two-hour experience where people arrive at the farm and we talk a lot we, about the goat so it's a, it's educational and and recreational and so you learn a lot about goats and we talk about our experiences um both you know during the year of the goat and how we came to be here on the farm and and then we head out we hit the trail with with usually like seven seven. to to nine goats yeah and we have one one, yeah and philip the sheep we have one lone sheep who thinks he's a goat so (laughs) He comes on the hikes too. Nice, he's like the nice. mascot. Yeah, he's like a he's got his own little fan club. Yeah. Um, but so then we walk and the goats are untethered. They just walk along with people and you know, we stop at various places and talk about sort of the goats' behavior on the on the trail and what they um, like to eat. What they like to eat and you know, answer questions about goat facts. Yeah. And um, just like enjoy like being out in the woods with the animals and observing them. And they, they, they love being out there and people, it's just, yeah. an, it's just a nice way to enjoy nature and enjoy um, these really fun and beautiful animals. And then, then we loop back to the yeah, farm and, and have uh, fresh goat milk and cookies. And we, we used to teach people how to milk the goats um, at the end of the at the end of the hike. And that's one thing that during the pandemic, we haven't been able to do that because it's just, you know, you have to, the proximity you have to be in to be all tight together in the barn is too close. But um, But we're starting to do it with small private groups. Yeah, with small private groups as as people feel more comfortable um, and as we feel more comfortable. 
uh, we're starting to do like a chore experience, which we also used to do before before the pandemic. So um, we have a lot of a lot of stuff going on, and we teach workshops. You know, a lot of that was sort of uh, put on hold put on because hold because of the pandemic. We'll see if we go back to doing anything indoors this summer. If we but we've done another year. Yeah, but, but we've done we do cheese workshops and and baking workshops and. Um, chicken processing chicken pro- yeah so if anyone out there is interested in learning how to you know backyard you know backyard butchery. poultry slaughter yeah. and butchery we we do those workshops too uh, yeah. that's awesome i mean i i am very much gonna have to be in touch with you guys in uh july when i'm on my way up because i would love to stop and do a goat hike that'd be so fun yeah absolutely Excellent. please be super super cool uh so yeah i mean Goats, I feel like are, I don't know, I mean, you mentioned it a little bit, like, I feel like goats are kind of having a moment. I don't know if that, you know, if, yeah. you, if you would feel the yeah. same way, but I mean, I definitely, you know, at least in the way the algorithm serves me stuff on things like Instagram, I see a lot of goats, uh, you know, people that I know either have goats or talking about goats. And when I was growing up, I went to a, a school where we kept some, we had some goats um, oh. and you know, the, the, as we became teenagers and stuff, like it was our responsibility to take care of them and, and do some of that stuff. And I remember them having wildly different personalities. Like I remember yes. some of the goats were like super nice and super friendly. And some of the goats were kind of like standoffish and were a little bit mean and would like try to chew on your pants and stuff, um, which I found very interesting because I, I, you know, it was the first time I'd ever spent any time around livestock in that way. Um, and, you know, like your perception, I don't know, my perception growing up was like, well, you know, a chicken is a chicken is a chicken, but turns out that's not really mm-hmm. true. No, they definitely have their own personalities and their own preferences. You know, if you really spend a lot of time with any animal, but, you know, the one we spend the most time with is goats. Right. Um, you, you see them liking certain things, behaving in certain ways. You know, we have we milk our goats by hand. And so every morning we're spending time, this very like intimate kind of meditative time with them every morning and evening. And uh and each goat that we're milking behaves differently on the milk stand too. Mm. You know, they, uh, some don't like to put their head in the th- through the thing. Others right. they prefer this grain over yeah. that grain. There's, there's everyone's a little different. Yeah, yeah. And are you planning to grow the herd? I mean, obviously, like dairy animals have to continually be pregnant in order to keep producing milk. So is that? I mean, or is like, are you guys at a number where you feel like it's at stasis? We're we're kind of at our sweet spot. We have so we started raising goats this at the same time that we started raising humans. We right. got our first goats like a month <laughs> before our daughter was born. And um and so we've already had the we've been like our foundation herd, the ones the goats that we got mm. in two thousand six, all finally the last of them has passed. Mm. And so we have grown the herd from within, starting with those first four goats. Got it. Um but at times it's gotten unwieldy, you know, I think at the most one year we had like 19, 19 goats and that was way too many for, for yeah. us to, to just be able to manage and feel like we weren't thinking about the goats all the time. Right. Um, so we have right now, I think we have 12 goats. Is yeah. that right? With the addition yeah. of Vronsky. Yes. Yeah. So we have, we have 12 goats now and then, you know, four pigs and a couple horses, a flock of ducks, like a little of this, little of that. Lots of chickens. Lots of chickens. And you know, the the homestead started with goats, but it really is diversified. It's a a homestead where we try to sort of close the circle between production and consumption. Mm. And so a, a lot of a lot of different variety of animals has been really essential to to what we've done to the land here. 
Um, so I think we're kind of at a good, a good spot. You know, if we have, if we have another buckling born, we'll probably keep him. But yeah, you know, so I guess we're probably, yeah, we'll, but, but, but we're probably, probably about where we like to be. Cool. And then do you have any, are there other animals that you're looking to add to the menagerie? Oh, well, or? So we just, we just added our, our, our middle daughter for her birthday really wanted miniature donkeys uh-huh. and, uh, and we weren't able to get miniature donkeys, but we did uh, find two miniature horses for her. So, so now we've got these two miniature horses. Um, and, and they're they're hilarious. Yeah. They they're like they make horse noises. They do all the same things horses do, but they come up to your waist. Oh, they're wow. amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah really so funny. we're yeah. So so she's got these. She has she has two piglets that she's raising right now, and then she has these two miniature horses that are now here for we don't know how long yeah. for the duration and uh we're sort of figuring out how to incorporate them into into some of the things we do here on the farm as well um but i don't know i mean we all don't know what's left I honestly yeah, we, i mean you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah i know i mean alpacas not really mm-hmm. interested in alpacas yeah. no, no offense to alpaca people no right um yeah. sadie really wants ostriches but i just don't see that happening yeah yeah um I don't know. We get we'll get turkeys in in uh, June or July. We'll get yeah. we'll get. But those are just bolts and they're. It's here. a limited engagement. They're yeah. until sure. Thanksgiving. Yep. So. Right. Right. Yeah. And we the ducks are a relatively recent addition, but uh, they're interesting. Yeah, so. I've been enjoying that. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we're probably about where we where we want to be with animals. Yeah. <laughs> so but if I you do... had it to do over again. Uh, mm-hmm. would, do you think you would have ended up with goats? Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't, I honestly, I cannot imagine our lives being really any different than they are right now. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah I think, I, I think like one thing the pandemic showed me was that I still woke up every morning, really grateful to be where I am, which mm. felt like a, a huge revelation to me that, that you know, this was, this is where we're happy. That's so. awesome. Great. Well, thank you guys so much. I, that, that pretty much covers all the questions that I had. And I, think <laughs> I think, I think ending on being happy is a great place to, to finish yeah. up. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can follow Carl and Margaret online at 10 Apple Farm, at Maine 200 Cookbook, and at Community Cookbook Podcast. And you can tune in to Cooking is Community wherever you get your podcasts or at communitycookbook.com. It's a great show. I like to listen to it while making dinner. And you can check out more about hiking with goats at tenapplefarm.com. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. 
and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.